0: Before we dive into the eerie tales of the past, I have some electrifying news to share with you. I'm excited to announce that the Haunted History Chronicles podcast now has its very own small shop of the macabre and mysterious. Picture this. Exclusive merchandise, hauntingly beautiful artwork, spine-tingling stickers, mugs that will make your morning coffee seem positively paranormal and prints that capture the ghostly essence of days gone by. Whether you're a longtime listener of the show, or a newcomer drawn to the enigmatic allure of haunted history, the shop is your gateway to the supernatural. Imagine decorating your space with a piece of history, a connection to the spectral past. The merchandise is designed to evoke the very essence of the stories I share, making it an essential addition to your collection, of all things eerie. You can find all these hair raising treasures on the website, or simply follow the links conveniently placed in the podcast description notes. It's so easy, even a ghost could do it. So, whether you're searching for the perfect addition to your haunted memorabilia collection, or just wanting to immerse yourself in the world of the supernatural, the shop is here to provide. Dive into the past, embrace the spook, and let the stories of history's ghosts haunt your space. So why not visit the shop today? And remember, the spirits of the past are waiting for you. The Haunted History Chronicles exclusive merchandise is just a click away. Happy shopping, and may the spirits be with you. Hi everyone and welcome back to Haunted History Chronicles. First of all, thank you for taking a listen to this episode. Before we begin, I just want to throw out a few ways you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon page as well as an Amazon link, so hopefully if you're interested in supporting, you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those can either be found in the show notes or over on the website. Of course, just continuing to help spread the word of the show on social media, leaving reviews, and sharing with friends and family is also a huge help. So thank you for all that you do. And now, let's get started by introducing today's podcast, or guest. Welcome, dear listeners, to another episode of the Haunted History Chronicles. Tonight we delve into the enigmatic and hauntingly beautiful realm of Cornwall, a place where the echoes of ancient legends and mysteries reverberate. Through the rugged cliffs and windswept moors. Nestled in the embrace of the wild ocean, Cornwall beckons to those who seek the secrets of a land, steeped in the shadowy embrace of the past. This is a place where time stands still, where the lines between reality and folklore blurs, into a mesmerizing tapestry of myths and folklore, from the whispers of the first Stone Age settlers, to the thundering footsteps of the ancient Celtic tribes and the lingering enchantment of the legends of King Arthur, Cornwall remains a treasure trove of tales that have endured the test of time. Joining us on this journey through the veiled enigma of Cornwall is none other than esteemed guest Elizabeth Dale, a revered Cornish writer, blogger, and the enchanting voice behind the podcast, The Cornish Bird. Together we shall look at some of the underwater mysteries that lie hidden beyond the craggy cliffs and lie beneath the surface of the water. Elizabeth will guide us through the secrets of this land, sharing her wisdom and insights into the magical secret places that await with tales of sea monsters and mermaids. Prepare to be spellbound as we unearth the lost tales and haunted history that have shaped the essence of Cornwall, revealing the echoes of the past that still resonate within its very core. So brace yourselves for an expedition into the heart of Cornwall's legends, mysteries and strange encounters. Let the journey begin. Hi, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. Do you want to just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and, of course, your blog and your podcast and (laughs) what got you started in wanting to go down that route? Yes. So um, my name's Elizabeth
1: Dale and um, I'm a Cornish writer. Um, I'm not a historian. Um, I'm just completely fascinated by Cornish history. So um, I started started my blog, oh gosh, it must be about eight years ago now, um, actually as part of my university course um uh because we were told we we had to start blogging and uh this was a very new concept for me i was a mature student and blogging was not something that i had ever thought about doing before so i just started doing it and and absolutely loved it write about what i wanted to write about and what really interested me and um i've just always been really curious about uh Local myths and legends, and local history, and yeah, just really started from there. And um, the podcast just seemed like a natural progression of that. Um, a couple of years ago, because there were some stories that I'd found in my research that they just seemed to to be asking to be <laughs> made into a podcast. So yeah, so I, I saved some of my much more unusual or more curious stories, I suppose, for the podcast.
0: And Cornwall really does seem to be steeped in just rich, incredible history and myths and legends. I was just going to say, what factors do you think contribute to that kind of proliferation of folklore, if you like, in the region?
1: Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's an endless source of of stories for me and entertainment. Um, it really does feel like everywhere you go um, in the landscape, uh, all around the coast, you know, every nook and cranny, it feels like there's some kind of myth, um, associated with it. You know, every boulder, um, it's something to do with a giant has, has hurled it to that location. Every headland is somewhere where witches were standing and calling up storms. So it's just an endless source of, of, of fascination. And, um, I think, I I guess, like all these sort of places that are on the fringe, uh, like Cornwall is, um, they they just tend to, I don't know, attract those kind of stories or uh, just the
0: atmosphere of, of a place creates them in itself. And I do think like you were just kind of touching upon that geography, the landscape really does play such a significant part in that because it has it all. You've got the atmospheric, you know, rocky regions, you've Mm -hmm. got the crashing waves, the cliffs. I mean, you've basically got every type of landscape you can imagine. And with that, then obviously so many different types of characters and individuals and stories that could be generated across those different types of, of landscapes.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I I often think that, um, you know, folklore uh, myths and legends, they were often stories that were told to try and explain something that people couldn't understand you know so uh, the the giant stories you know how the the coits uh, were created you know very often um trucevi coit for example is is known as uh, the giant's house you know so uh, uh, you know nature people just trying to explain you know the the mystery that was surrounding them things that they they didn't quite understand couldn't quite explain
0: and i think that kind of then leads itself into you you of you very much see featured this explanation of of things unexplainable and those elements of the supernatural being brought into um, a lot of these stories in some yeah. format or another. And I think it's it's then something that you see that really drives in, an enduring fascination because they're still there. we're still fascinated equally with these types of stories because in some way it just allows us to have this bridge to understand, belief systems and thoughts from a time in the past and it just allows us to connect with that and to understand it and also at the same time evaluate our own beliefs and there's something very powerful and enduring about that I think as well.
1: Yeah, definitely, it is a real connection to to the past. You know, these these legends tell you so much about what what was important to people. What you know, um, and yeah, obviously, you can uh, relate that forward to you, to your your own life, really. And it, yeah, it it gives you a, a deeper connection, I think, to your ancestors, to to the past, and obviously to the magical landscape that that surrounds you.
0: And you know, speaking of geography and magical landscape. I know that you have one particular incredible account from 1827 of a mermaid sighting.
1: Yes, this one is, this one's great because I think a, a lot of people, when they they will automatically think of of the mermaid of Zena. I think that's the, one of our most um, famous folk tales. But in actual fact, it was it was. It's quite a late one. It was only recorded in um, eighteen seventy-three, so sort of late Victorian period. Um, and there have obviously been sightings of mermaids in Cornwall for much, much longer than that. So, uh, I mean, I was just thinking about this bit before um, I was talking to you uh, this evening. They're in Brigg Church. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's a beautiful church just outside of Helston. wall paintings, um, beautifully preserved on the walls. And they're about 600 years old, these wall paintings. And you've got images of St. Christopher and Christ and Thomas of Beckett and um, King Henry Sixth. But in amongst that, you've got this beautiful image of a mermaid looking at herself in a little hand mirror. So what I'm saying is that, you know, the Mermaid of Zona is our most, one of our most famous folk tales. But mermaid sightings obviously date back much, much further than that. And this one in um, 1827 was actually reported in the newspapers. And yeah, I wrote about it a, a few years ago now. And it, it happened um, in the height of summer. And over three consecutive days, there were these uh, these sightings of mermaids on a beach called Morgan Porth, which is actually uh, near Newquay.
0: And I know that um, there was, you know, a particular encounter from a young man who experienced it on this, on the first day. You mentioned that Mm. it kind of happened over consecutive days. Yeah. What exactly did he witness in that cave? And, you know, how did it appear to him (laughs) in that sense of part human
1: yeah, I know. And that's the other fascinating thing as well. We we have this very fixed image um, these days of what a mermaid should look like. Um, and, you know, this idea of this very beautiful woman that's half uh, half woman and half fish. And she's got long golden hair and, you know, a bikini made of seashells. Um, uh, but that really wasn't always the image of, of a mermaid. And, and these descriptions from 1827 are, are sort of conjure up a much sort of a less attractive image. The story goes, uh, or what was reported in the newspaper, I should say, was that um, a young man was meeting his friend on a, on the beach at Porth, and they were going to go fishing together. And he arrived on the beach and couldn't see his friend, so sort of was hanging around and then heard some noises coming from one of the caves um, there on the beach. And he thought at first that it was his friend, you know, playing a trick on him. And so he he supposedly went inside and then came herring back up the beach, because he had seen in there what he described as a part human in the cave, and it had long hair hanging all around its its body. Um and yeah, he he was absolutely,
0: you know petrified by by what he had seen. Were there any, you know, other reports of similar sightings or unusual occurrences in the area leading up to those three days when it really started to be reported? Yeah, no, not that, not
1: that I could find, which doesn't mean to say that there weren't. I mean, the, the newspapers obviously picked up on the story and sent a a reporter down there. But, you know, this was sort of days after and they were only getting the stories then from the witnesses. The the reporter, I don't believe, saw anything himself. Um, The second sighting came the following day and that was um, actually by a group of men above the same beach, um, possibly looking for pilchard shoals. Um, And and they, again, described, you know, seeing this sort of... (laughs) these half-human creatures um, below them o- on the rocks. I think there was uh, supposedly three of them that time. And then it happened again on, on the third day, and this time the men said that they actually watched five of these creatures for an extended uh, period of time, for, for more than an hour. Um, and they gave, you know, quite a, a vivid description of what they saw. And they said that these mermaids were um, had really long hair, sort of nine or ten feet long, that was trailing out beside them on the rocks, and that they were lying in the sun, sort of sunbathing. And some of them were, were swimming in the sea. And they said that their upper bodies were uh, very pale skin. Um, and that their lower half was a fin that was kind of blue in colour. Now, obviously, you know, people were very sceptical then, I'm sure, and and people will be very sceptical now. But I think what I find really interesting about these stories is um, that they're reported by people who were very familiar with the coast and they were very familiar with the creatures that lived in the waters around their coast and sea monsters in particular. A lot of the reports that you get here in Cornwall actually come from mariners, from fishermen. And it becomes quite hard to completely just discount these accounts because they're coming from people who should know what they're looking at and know that that's not a seal <laughs> that they're watching, that it's something It's something very, very different. So, yeah, that's why I find this story from Morgan Porth so so fascinating, that there were multiple accounts of these particular creatures over three consecutive days, which I think is, yeah, really fascinating.
0: And like you said, the individuals who, who made these sightings and the fact that one of them was a group experience... Just, uh, I think it adds weight to something having been witnessed, whatever it was. Yeah. Because it's easy to to discount something when it's one person, but a group, it's harder to. And then, like you mentioned, when it's people who are so familiar with what you see along that area of the coast, mm. where they've probably seen everything at some point, you know, well, it for them so. to have an experience, yeah, you t- mm. for them to have an experience, it it makes it a bit strange, a bit more odd, I think.
1: Yeah, if it was the only the the boy, the young man on the first day, then you could you could definitely say that you know he he had uh, imagined it or he had seen something that you know was a seal or was some other kind of sea creature that he wasn't familiar with. Several people, you know watching these uh, creatures for an extended period of time, then it it becomes, yeah, it becomes much more difficult to just completely poo-poo it and say that it's all a figment of their imagination.
0: Were there any other attempts to investigate those sightings further in, you know, the following days or talk to other potential witnesses to try and find out more? No, not that I'm aware of. Um,
1: I think the journalist came down, you know, and took these accounts from the people in in Morgan Port and and as far as I can gather, that was kind of the the end of it. That doesn't mean to say that um, locally they didn't see more or there wasn't more discussion. I'm sure there was a lot of discussion down the pub um, about about what people had seen.
0: Oh, I think so. I think I mean, you can imagine it, can't you? It's a it's a very rich story to to precisely do that, to sit around a fire with a pint in your hand and talk about. But also because of that very strong connection with the fishing community, you know, obviously tales of sea creatures and mermaids were really prevalent. So I think it would have probably been just part of their culture anyway and their storytelling experience. And so if there is an experience like this, an eyewitness account or accounts Mm. in this case, I'm sure it was kind of common topic fodder, if you like. Yeah, I'm sure. And, and as you say, that those kind of stories are kind of
1: uh, universal, aren't they? It's all over the world, sea monsters as well, all over the world, um, which I think that aspect is interesting in itself. You know, this isn't something that's, um, you know, just specific to the coast of Cornwall or the coast of the UK. You get you know, mermaid stories in all different cultures around the world.
0: And you also get versions of them. So something that I've spoken about before on the podcast is how language over time changes when it comes to saying that this is an example of this. You know, a hundred years later, that wording, that the way it's been grouped is classified as something else. And I think when you start re-examining examples of folklore, Mm. you start to see connections with, with other rich stories that... Just have too many coincidences. Yeah, to not make that to not make that possible leap that these are the same types of experiences being shared. Yeah, there's too, too much in common, isn't there? Absolutely. Mm. So, have there been any modern sightings of mermaids in that area as a kind of a follow up? Much earlier, mm. eighteen twenty seven one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't think so. Or at least I, I
1: haven't um, actually come come across any but there have definitely been plenty of sightings of other kind of sea monsters around the Cornish coast up until actually fairly quite uh, quite recently. Um, there was a, a particular spate of them um, in, in the 1970s and, and 80s which I've written about as
0: well. Gosh, it's fascinating, isn't it? <laughs> Makes you just want to go out and watch and look and hope. <laughs> I know. I'm one of those people that
1: I always want to see a ghost or I want to see a fairy or you know I'm very open to it but it never happens.
0: (laughs) But I just think it speaks so much like we've spoken about it speaks so much doesn't it about what they believed in and just the power of story and how enduring it was that all of these years later these particular stories are still there they're still present and they're still being written about and and spoken about on podcasts and Yeah, just part of the the community storytelling and then the wider storytelling around the globe like we've mentioned. I think the fact that that still happens tells us something about the importance of this tradition and something about the stories, the meaning of them or the magical nature of them or the supernatural part of it or whatever it is, there is something very powerful about what is within them, the depths within them. At the start with The Mermaid of Zena.
1: you know, uh, there have been numerous books written about The Mermaid of Zena, and songs and pieces of music and, you know, paintings. Um, yeah, she, she definitely inspires uh, people right up until the present day. And, you know, going to see The Mermaid's Chair in Zena is just one of those things that, if you're familiar with Colmore, if you, you're familiar with the Pen- uh, Penwith area, that you definitely you will go to Zena Church and you will go and sit in the mermaid's chair you know.
0: And I think you're right I think you see elements of it in so much don't you in terms of painting in terms of architecture and in terms of just stories folklore I mean just little little nooks and crannies here and there and then you just notice these small things and then you make this connection of that's a mermaid at the end of that pew or that's a mermaid (laughs) tucked away in the corner of that alcove up there. And it's like, it's incredible. It's really incredible. And then when you know some of the stories that sit behind them, I just think, again, it just allows that bridge to make that connection with the people who are telling those stories and then building these structures as to, you know, to see that they were so important to them, their everyday lives.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, like the the wall paintings in Brix Church, you know. They were put up there to um you know, cuz most people during that medieval period, or most ordinary people couldn't read and write. So one of the ways that they were taught the the Bible stories was these, you know, fantastic wall paintings. But included amongst all those saints, there's this little mermaid just, just lurking <laughs> in the water at St Christopher's feet, checking herself out in a in a mirror, you know.
0: But I think it very much speaks to the power of religion, obviously, was so very, very strong for people. Mm. But at the same time, there is this power in something otherworldly and yeah. people very much clinging to both because, you know, you can't almost put all of your faith in one. You've still got to no. somehow have these connections with these older belief systems and traditions. Yeah, And so you do have this kind of marrying of the two in so many little ways like that, in murals, and architecture, and, and so on, like we've talked about. And again, I just think it speaks so much to these are people straddling almost two worlds, mm. um, and trying to bring together different parts of, of who they are, and older traditions, and the church, and all of these other things, to make sense of what's happening around them.
1: Yeah, they still needed that connection to those old stories.
0: Absolutely. And you know, we've obviously been talking about these wonderful sea creatures, the the mermaids, and you've touched upon the fact that, you know, obviously Cornwall obviously is so well known also for other sightings and legends of sea monsters. Do you want to elaborate a little bit about that and go into some of the other encounters that you've written about or spoken about on the podcast? So I I started looking into sea monsters.
1: Gosh! Quite early on in in the blog, um, I came across a story uh, of um, a monster that had, uh, a fisherman off the Roseland. Um, I think that was in the 1840s, and that was the first story that that I I, uh, I came across. Uh, Paul Scatho, it was, um, and that just sent me off on a, on a bit of a, a mission <laughs> to see what other stories that I could dig up. And um, the most famous of them, I would guess, is the Morgor, although the name is pronounced in several different ways. But I'm going to stick with Morgor, and. Um, She is a sea monster uh, living or lived um, in the Falmouth Bay area, specifically close to the Helford River. Um, And she was spotted on numerous occasions over the sort of 1970s and 80s, to such an extent that the area became known as the Morgul Mile um, because there had just been so many sightings of of this um, this strange creature in in the water. It's
0: just fascinating, isn't it? I mean, just really incredible. Do you know what inspired that local legend? What was the kind of the evidence, that definitive bit of evidence maybe that prompted that type of storytelling in that area? Was there anything in specific that was the the catalyst? I I can't say
1: exactly, but there was just numerous sightings uh, that people were reporting to to the newspapers. So, uh, for example, in in 1975, standing standing on Pendennis Point, saw a creature out in the water that had a a large conger eel in its mouth um which goes to show you perhaps how how big the sea monster was if it had a great big conger eel um, and they described it to the newspapers as a hideous humped creature with a long bristly neck and and stumpy horns um, and then a few months after that, a um, a letter and a series of photographs were sent to the Falmouth Packet office. Um, that's the local newspaper there in Falmouth. And the the lady that sent the the letter, she wanted to re- remain anonymous, but um, she claimed to have watched uh, this creature, which she said was fifteen or eighteen feet long with a snake's head out in the water off Trefusis Point, um, which is a headland just in, in Falmouth Bay. They're very, very grainy, but you can imagine, you know, we're talking the 1970s here. I'm sure she didn't have a fancy zoom camera. <laughs> um, but you can you can quite clearly see the outline of this long necked creature. So that, yeah, that that's how it all all began. There was just through 1975, 1976, you know, for at least two or three years, there were these sightings, and then that started sort of a little bit of a media frenzy. In a way, they they had reporters come down from all over the place. There, there, from Scotland, who visited um, the Helford River because she believed that she could make contact with Nessie in Scotland and therefore she would be able to make contact with Morgor in the, in the Helford River. Um, and apparently she took to um, swimming naked in the river. Um, how, this was to, how this was going to get uh, the, the sea creature to come out and communicate with her, I'm not sure. But yes, there, there was a TV uh, document. Yeah, all, all kinds of things were, were happening all revolving around uh, this sea this creature that was um, supposedly living in the Helford River.
0: To celebrate heading into the spookier season, autumn nights, howling wind and freezing rain, Halloween spookiness in the dark depths of winter, Haunted History Chronicles will be posting daily podcasts on Patreon, on all tiers over there as well as the usual additional items offered. Signing up now will gain you access to these, as well as all previous archived content. For as little as £1 you could be getting hundreds of podcasts to enjoy, writing, source material and more, and know that you are contributing and helping the podcast to continue to put out more content. You can find the link in the episode description notes, as well as on the Haunted History Chronicles website or social media. So why not come along to enjoy a rich web of accounts perfect for this season? Dark tales of corpses, ghosts, folklore, Christmas and Halloween macabre traditions and connections, and a whole lot more. And now, let's head back to the podcast. It's fascinating, though, how... um, you see accounts like this crop up and then disappear for a little while and then something else reappears decades mm-hmm. later. I mean, we've seen it recently, obviously, with the resurgence and in interest in, in in accounts of Nessie and mm. everybody flocking up there to have yeah. that weekend of of really trying to see if they could find anything. But again, yeah. I just think it speaks to this enduring need and desire to understand the ocean better and what lays beneath it because it's so vast, it's so deep, yeah. who knows really what could be lurking beneath that surface yeah. um, that's hidden from our view and it it kind of plays into all of those fears doesn't it of what's there with us whilst we're swimming around and enjoying ourselves um, exactly. what, do we, what do we not see
1: mm. yeah very very much so yes yeah and, and you're right yeah um, the has come and gone over the years. Um, One of the earliest sightings, actually, that wasn't actually recorded at the time, but um, was recorded in the 1970s, was a chap who um, claimed to have seen this sea creature when he had been a boy, which was in the 1950s. So, um, yeah, there was a a lot of interest at, at the time. I haven't heard anything uh, more recently, though, I think that the sightings sort of faded out in the in the 80s, and the, I don't think there's been much um, since then. But go, you know, going back, it's difficult uh, in some of the cases to discount the stories because um, of the the people that were um, seeing these unusual things. One of the most important accounts, I suppose, was um, in July 1976, and that was made by two fishermen. And one of which had more than forty years' experience, um, and you know, he told the newspapers that you know he's seen all kinds of sea creatures. This was not something that was familiar to him, and he he was adamant that um, he had seen some kind of sea monster. So yeah, it's accounts like that one that are are more difficult to discount.
0: Absolutely, and I think there's something quite striking in the similarities between the descriptions as well. Mm. And you can say that maybe people have picked up or remembered something from seeing something reported earlier, but I don't know if that accounts for everything in the sense that you've got, like we've been talking about, you've got people who are very kind of down to earth, straightforward, shooting from the hip type thing. They're not going to be making up accounts of sea creatures when they're the, the rugged fishermen doing this day in and day out. Um, no, there was um, there was a chap called
1: Donald Ferris. He actually told the newspapers that he thought that the whole thing was a joke. You know that people that you know people were deluding themselves or making it up or you know imagining things. And then in September 1976, he was walking his dog along Gilling Bay's Beach, and he told the West Briton that he saw a creature that he estimated was 60 foot long in the water off that beach. And up until that point, he'd poo-pooed everybody else's accounts. So, you know, that's quite odd in itself, I think.
0: But it's quite a striking, um, sizable thing to imagine, isn't it? I mean, it's not something small. It's something very obvious, something very noticeable, something striking. And again, I think some of those details makes it, I think, harder to just completely discount as being total rubbish because... It's not something that they just caught a glimpse of, possibly something small just whirring itself out of the water that could be something similar to something else. These are these are sightings of mm. something very, very significant.
1: Yeah. So
0: again, it makes it more mystifying, more intriguing, I think.
1: Yeah, it does, for sure. I mean, obviously, there started to be a sort of a bit of a, um, a media circus around it. Um, and, you know, there were there were certain local characters who took advantage um, and, you know, tried to make a bit of money. And there, there was, you know, there was a good bit of local humour around it as well. I love the story that um, a lot of the local schools held a competition for the children, like a dress-up, uh, fancy dress competition. Um, you know to make themselves into the most convincing sea monster <laughs> and win a prize which I think is great you know it just shows a, a little bit of, uh, of local humor and not taking themselves too seriously and maybe as well to stop you know the children being frightened you know there there must have been a certain amount of um, trepidation I would have thought you know of, of getting in the water if all these people are telling you that they're seeing a sea monster out there
0: gosh absolutely and I just Mm. think but again I think it's a brilliant way how they've done it of of allowing those children to connect with what's happening locally and to like you said to not have that fear of of what may be in the water if they go out swimming Mm. or paddling or whatever. But it just allows them to connect with the story themselves and to be fascinated by their own landscape. And I think we can all too often forget the beauty and the majesty of what's right on our doorstep. But when you have something like that happen, it does allow you to, I think, really see it suddenly and appreciate it in a very different way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
1: There is a a curious aspect as well to um, the story that I told you of the two fishermen uh, Mm -hmm. that spotted the sea monster. Um, The thing that I find curious is the Natural History Museum actually sent a representative down to speak to these two fishermen. And um, they interviewed them separately. And according to uh, the accounts of the time, the two men both identified the same picture they were shown a series of of um, mock-ups let's say of what the sea creature uh, that they had seen looked like and they both picked out the exact same image and that image was of that had been extinct for however many millions of years and I just think that's a really uh, just a small uh, fact but an interesting uh, an interesting one about the whole thing.
0: Well, again, it just adds to the mystery and to the intrigue, doesn't it? As to, well, mm. here you've got something, some something corroborative in the sense that they hadn't been prepared for that, but somehow have picked exactly the same types of, Im- you know, the same type of image to mm. show what it was that they saw. It um, kind of adds weight to the fact that they weren't they weren't making it up. What, they, what is
1: what I mean that 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 this was um, that they genuinely saw something that they yeah. didn't understand. You know.
0: So have there been any um, kind of studies or research or thoughts, um, you know, compelling arguments that suggest what might have been witnessed by different Ooh, people? Yeah, there's been, all- there's, of-
1: <laughs> 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 there's been all kinds of theories towards you know, it, it being some kind of giant eel um, that, you know, it, uh, and I know that uh, there are um, reports from modern divers of some very large conger eels out in Falmouth Bay, particularly actually in the Carrick Roads. I don't know if you know the Helford um, King Harry Ferry mm-hmm. crossing, do, not, yes. not on that, not on the Helford. Sorry, on uh, on the Carrick Roads, the King Harry Ferry crossing. So, I heard a story uh, many years ago now. Um, There is a, the the ferry crosses the river by a chain mechanism. So there's a chain that sort of drags along the the riverbed and and pulls the ferry across. And at that point in the river, it's very, very deep, um, extremely deep. They take enormous ships up there. You wouldn't believe by the width of the river and how big a ship that they can get up there. Anyway, this chain sort of dangles down into the water and specialized divers down I think, to check the chain and to do maintenance and, you know, clean everything and repair. And uh, the story that I was told um, by someone that knew one of these divers is that on um, one occasion they were down checking this chain, and of course it's pitch black down there as well. And in one of their lights, they, they caught the most enormous eel (laughs) just the hugest eel that they had ever seen and it was so big that the divers point blank refused ever to go down there again now how true that story is i don't know i obviously heard it second or third hand but um that is one of the theories is that you know people have spotted um, an eel, but it it doesn't quite fit with the description that we've got, you know, from these sightings in the seventies and eighties. It doesn't doesn't quite make sense to me.
0: But again, I think this is the beauty of of, of things like this. You have certain parts that kind of make sense, but doesn't fit everything, mm. and it just keeps the story going, doesn't it? it? Keeps the discussion going because. There isn't definitive proof one way or the other. There's just no. theories and suggestions and yeah. thoughts. And yeah, yeah it, it's it's part of the mystery. And again, I think that's what's so wonderful about so much of uh, of what you see in terms of folklore and myths and legends of, of places mm. all over the all over the world. But Cornwall does seem to have a lot. we love a good story you know (laughs) but I think it comes back to what you said right at the start it's this it's this connection to something really old Mm -hmm. and Cornwall is just one of those places that still seems to have this this connection of wanting to be part of that past you know not the not the rat race not the 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 fast-paced living of places like London and I think with so many different locations and history, you're you're bound to have these types of stories and there is just an incredible an incredible array of them just everywhere, like you mentioned, every type of type of story imaginable. And that is the mystery, it's the beauty of it. But when you don't have everything neatly sewn together, again it just makes that mystery even more intriguing doesn't it that it's not so it's not clear-cut you you can find things either side of the argument
1: yeah that it's open to your interpretation and open you know to your imagination as well yeah I mean I think anyone that um has visited Cornwall especially in the winter I would say you know it's all very well standing um on a beach on a lovely warm sunny day when the waves are just lapping you know gently in it's a completely whole other beast on a a very rough winter's day that you know you can actually see it coming across the water Um, it it just gives a a whole different atmosphere Um, and yeah there's so many sort of atmospheric um, landscapes down here um, and uh, yeah it all Molds together to to yeah create all these long standing these long standing myths um, and as you say yeah I think as as a rule down here we we are very fond of those stories as they're very much part of our of our culture for sure
0: and I think something you just said I think really is absolutely true that you know the winter season is so at so atmospheric and mm. I think we forget that in years years gone by it would have been far more difficult to get in and out you would you know you would have been a bit more isolated than you are oh yeah very much so and so again you know with all of that happening around you when you're stuck inside it's an opportunity to have a good a good yarn isn't it to have a good story and to while away the winter months but then when you have very real things happening, you would have had a prevalence of things like shipwrecks, yeah. um, storms rolling in out of nowhere. Like you mentioned, just mist coming in so quickly. Mm. All of those would have had some kind of a story attached to them to explain what was happening. Yeah, um, very much so. And again, it was just a way of people trying to understand and to make sense and in some ways to control the elements around them. Yeah, definitely. So it's it's fascinating. Do you have a particular favourite part of Cornwall that you've enjoyed researching, or myth and myth, or legend, or ghost law, or something? that <laughs> Oh gosh,
1: no, it's that's like trying to you know pick a favourite child, isn't it? No, I, <laughs> I mean i i i love um, i love Cornwall in so many. I, I love all the different landscapes, I suppose, I should say. You know, I, I, I love being by the, the coast, um, but I suppose if you made me pick, you know, um, I love being up on Bodmin Moor, the most beautiful areas to me. It's not everybody's cup of tea. Um, my other half is not particularly fond of it. Um, but I just love the that wide open landscape and the broad horizons and, you know, so much sky. Um, and, you know, I love all the tour and uh, there's a lot of uh, stone circles and things like that up on Bodmin Moor so yeah for me if I had to pick an area of Cornwall it would either be the Penwith or up on Bodmin Moor.
0: I just think it's a real chance to connect with the earth um, and the Mm. sea the ocean I mean we're talking it's it's just nature isn't it it's, and being able to connect with it and like you said when you're in that open space the sky above you the ground beneath you the crags all of it again just something very connective in that i think
1: yeah i think for me as well um Moor moore is just absolutely littered with prehistoric remains thousands of hut circles. um Bronze Age hut circles there, and uh, there's no footpaths on Bodmin Moor. You you literally just are free to sort of wander, um, and you'll quite often just stumble across, you know, a group of of hut circles together. And and um, that for me is just an amazing connection to to the past.
0: Just wonderful history again, isn't it? Right mm. on the doorstep, and yeah. and again, Cornwall does seem to have. Uh, just a proliferation of all of it. I can't think of many places across across the UK actually, where you do have such an array of different types of features, like different standing stones and and all of these different things that we've been talking about. Literally, I mean, I suppose the other the only other place you can say is Wales when you when you think about and compare how many castles that they have. Every five minutes, there's another different type of castle. It's almost like that, but to do with landscape features and these very, very old structures um, that are even older. Like I said, there's just so many of them. There's just, it's incredible the amount. It's beautiful.
1: Yeah, I think I read somewhere that um, there are more prehistoric remains per square mile in Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly, than there are anywhere else in in the UK. They're all just squashed into our little peninsula, <laughs> which is great for someone like me that just you know that loves loves visiting them. And and I I, I get a kick really out of finding these the the lesser known sites. Um, there's plenty that are really easy to visit, like Merry Maiden Stone Circle, for example. Um, or Lanyon Coit, you know, they're right beside a road and you can literally hop out your car and others that, um, you know, take a a lot more effort and um, you will often just have them all to yourself and uh, get to soak up uh, that atmosphere.
0: I just think it's magical. I think you've done a wonderful um, job of of really selling the beauty of Cornwall for anybody who is listening who has never been, which I can't imagine... (laughs) have at some point and if they haven't they're going to want to hop in their car and go away for the weekend I think because it's just it is it's stunning you can just get lost in the atmosphere the landscape the the rich history I mean you can have an incredible experience every single every single day and have something completely different and it doesn't um, stop that's really
1: in a way why I started the blog um, because there's just so much to see in Cornwall, and um, I was getting quite frustrated in a way at, um, you know, the TV programs that I saw promoting my home that I really felt were missing so much. You know, they would always focus on the same few places. You know, you'd always go to St Michael's Mount, and they'd always go to the Minack Theatre, you know, and St Ives, and as someone you know born and bred here I just know there's just so much more to see and I really felt that even local people were just missing out you know um and when I'm writing about them I may have just visited them for the first time but I really just wanted to just show the diversity that we have down here the 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 history is incredible and um Cornwall can sometimes feel when you're living here like very cut off from the rest of the world quite isolated but when you actually start looking into our history it just shows you you know how connected even up and you know to quite modern history with the packet service coming and going from Falmouth you know people from all over the world um, were arriving to these shores and, and yeah I just yeah I just love it it's it's uh it's just so exciting for me to discover these stories and then i get to share them
0: and your blog really is a treasure trove as well as your podcast into into all of those aspects because no one is the same as something else you really are putting out there just that rich array that we've been talking about and uncovering stories that i do i think you're right i think for most people they wouldn't necessarily know about no and And that's so rewarding, you know. I think there's something really powerful in trying to preserve that <clears throat> yeah. um for future generations. There's, you know, storytelling is such an important way of preserving heritage, cultural heritage, um, social history, all of these things that we've been speaking about, it tells us an incredible amount, just as much as Going and looking at an, a wonderful bit of architecture and and who made it and what year and what was happening around it at the time that might have influenced the design. Stories yeah. tell us just as much. They are so rich in terms of what they share.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And um, I I write as much for uh, local people as I do for for visitors because you know I was very aware that I wasn't taught any local history, any Cornish history, when I was growing up, I was completely oblivious to a lot of our, our heritage, and um, I, I knew that I wasn't the only one, you know. Um, so I write as much, actually perhaps even more, for Cornish people than, than I do for visitors, um, because as you say, I think it's so important that we, we preserve those stories, because if we lose them, then then yeah, we're losing our heritage and we're losing a little bit of ourselves. Um, and when I when I post a new blog post, some of the stories um, they get such a reaction from from local people who add so much to my knowledge you know and and i quite often have to update a post because someone said oh well my grandmother told me this or when i was a kid i heard that or you know so i i just love that because if i hadn't put that out there i might never have recorded that little piece that little snippet that little gem of uh, of a story you know
0: And that's the the goosebumps on the back of your neck and on your arms type of a moment, isn't it? Because it is oral storytelling at its best and preserving history at its best. You know, those are the things that would never make themselves known in any other way if not given an opportunity like that. But it's a fantastic, powerful medium to help preserve that and to collate and collaborate and, like we said, keep everything topical. And it's a conversation and it becomes again just something very co you know uniting and cohesive with people it's a community thing isn't it? it's a shared experience um yeah in the way that they always were in the past yeah exactly yeah definitely a hundred percent oh it's been so incredible to talk to you like i could literally talk to you about every single one of the posts that (laughs) i've ever read Um, we'd we'd be here a long time. <laughs> I know, but it would be fabulous. <laughs> we just need snacks thrown our way up
1: so often. <laughs> nice cup of tea in and out, yeah. Yeah.
0: The wind howling outside, the rain coming down, oh. let's just sit and have a natter about some good old Cornish tales and blush. And, and we haven't even started on ghost stories, you know. I know, I know. I just think <laughs> anybody who has ever 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 been interested in anything remotely like this when it comes to history folklore ghost lore you have to you have to go and check out elizabeth's blog um which is the Kern- kernish I put my <laughs> teeth in. cornish bird blog cornish bird blog and i will make sure to put all of the details for that into the podcast and on the you know onto the website as well as your podcast itself because I mean, like I said, it's just a treasure trove of ghost stories and folklore and everything. It's magical. It's truly, truly magical. People will just get lost in it, I think. Oh, thanks, Michelle. That was a bit of a plug there, wasn't it? But it's so (laughs) well deserved. I mean, eight years is is not an easy easy kind of thing. That's a real labour of love. And I think it shows. It shows in the writing. It shows in your podcast. You just... You just ooze Cornwall and I think oh. people connect with that. And I, again, I just think there's something very powerful about that when you get the right person um, sharing those tales. People just want to hear and want to read and and I think that's, that's what you've captured really. And yeah, I think if people haven't made their way over to you then hopefully, hopefully they do now because they should.
1: Oh, thank you. That's very, very kind. Thank you ever so much.
0: And I will say goodbye to everybody listening. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Bye bye.